Um, we're going to be looking at Romans 6 this morning, particularly verses 1 through 4 um, this morning. And um, so after this week and next, we will get back into John 12. Uh, so let's bow our heads as we come to God's word together. Lord, I thank you for the truths of this passage that we're going to be looking at. Lord, I thank you for the fact that we are able to participate in such a significant way, in a real way that affects us every day of our lives. We are able to participate in the death and resurrection of your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we talk a lot about what his death and resurrection meant for our eternal position for the person who receives Christ as their savior. But too often in our form of Christianity, we leave aside the impact that's intended to be made on our daily life. And Lord, I would just pray that you would empower me this morning with your words. Pray, Lord, that you'd enable each person here to open their heart and their lives up to your word and to your truth and to hear you speaking specifically to each one of us. Lord, I just thank you for this time in your word and I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Now, this, this is gonna test people's um, uh, sitting around the TV um, what, 30 years ago? How many of you remember watching on TV, or, or maybe if you've even seen it on the, the uh, reruns channels today, watching either the $6 million man or the bionic woman, right? Good. Dipping back there, my kids got to watch a little bit of the $6 million man um, on one of these rerun channels, and they were like, Ugh, why is he walking around with his, his shirt open to here with his hairy chest showing? <laughs> you know. So the idea behind the $6 million man and, and the, also the bionic woman that, that, was the, that was the partner series was that $6 million had been spent on this man in order to make him stronger, faster, better than he ever was before. I don't know if you're, ever, if you're aware of this, but they tried some years ago to do a, a, um, a rehash of the Bionic Woman, a new series of it. Um, they obviously weren't going to call it a, the $6 million woman, uh, because most of the women that were trying out for the parts had spent that much on their bodies anyways. So, and if they had tried to call it the $6 million woman, they would have thought people would have gotten confused with America's Next Top Model. But, so that is the same idea that this, this woman had, that all of, maybe she had had a, a, a catastrophic accident and her body needed to be rebuilt with the latest technology and things and, and that they were able to make her faster, stronger, better than ever before and, and somehow by that she kind of owed the government 
her life, you know, she became an agent of the government with all of her special abilities and things. And, and so she also gained a new purpose for life by being remade in this way. I've, I've wondered, you know, if somebody really, well, you remember kind of what would happen when the $6 million man or the bionic woman would do some strong feat. You know, for some reason, they'd always show it in slow motion, you know, they're supposed to be running really fast, but they show them running in slow motion. But you'd always hear that irritating sound in the background, you know, when they're like bending some pipe, you know. What would have happened if, if uh, all this money was spent on the bionic woman and the government agents that are kind of her handlers and telling her what to do and, and you know, the, the, the projects that they had working on, they showed up to her apartment and, they're, and she's just sitting around. You know, and they're like, oh, what are you doing? We made you faster, stronger, better than ever before to, to do good in this world. And she's like, oh, I'm good. You know, I'm, this is pretty amazing. I can do my laundry in 30 seconds. You know, the only, the only annoying thing is I just hear this, you know, the whole time I'm doing it. And, and, and check this out. I can hear what the people in the next apartment are saying with like these bionic ears that you guys gave me. Obviously, it would, it would be useless in some ways. You know, the, the show only had the interest because this person had a new purpose to their life. They had a, a new life that they were living because of being made new and being made uh, unique and stronger and, and better than before. My hope for us as a church is that you and I can realize the strength, purpose, and freedom that is ours through God's grace that we see here in Romans chapter 6. So let's just read through Romans 6, 1 through 11 here. Paul writes, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or do you know, or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. If we have been united with him like this in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all but the life he lives, he lives to God. I should say that verses 5 through 10 here are really explanatory 
uh, further explaining verses 1 through 4, which we're going to be focusing on. And then we'll also be focusing on verse 11 here, where he says, In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Our main idea this morning is that receiving Christ as our Savior causes our sin nature to be dethroned and a new nature to be imparted. Paul's description of grace up to this point in Romans, leading up to Romans 6, his description of grace is one in which, in, verse cha- in chapter 3, he describes God's grace as being a righteousness which is for all mankind, both Jew and Gentile, and is made available through Christ's sacrifice. And then in chapter 4, he describes how his grace is is given to us by faith prior to any sort of works, just as with Abraham was reckoned righteous because of his faith prior to his works. And in chapter 5, Paul explains how God's grace is more abundant, far more abundant than the sins that it covers. You've heard me share before that one of my favorite definitions of God's grace is the acronym of G-R-A-C-E, God's righteousness at Christ's expense. God's righteousness given to us at Christ's expense. Paul's description of God's glorious grace reaches a crescendo prior to chapter 6 in Romans 5, 20, and 21. These are the verses just prior to the verses that we're looking at where Paul writes, the law was added so that the trespass might increase, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness and bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So what Paul leads up to, to this point, I, I can best explain by, um, the, with the plant kudzu. Are we familiar with kudzu here in northern Indiana? I know, I'm sure in southern Indiana they're familiar with it. Maybe, maybe a southerner has finally accomplished uh, the Southern Revenge. I remember seeing a postcard one time that said, Southern Revenge, plant kudzu up north. <laughs> but in the south, it's very familiar to be driving down a country road and to see a whole hillside that once was trees and telephone poles and things like that that you could distinguish from each other that just became covered with this vine called kudzu. And it had just taken it over. Did all the all the limbs on the trees are gone. You can't tell the tree from the telephone pole except for the wires coming from it. And, and this vine kudzu has, has just taken it over and completely. And let me explain for you how, think of sin as being like kudzu, okay? And what verse 20 is saying here, the law was added so that sin, so that the trespass might increase. Think of like the law being like a, you go out, and you want to show just how fast this kudzu plant is growing. Or maybe you're trying, you decide you want to 
contain the kudzu field. So he decided, I'm going to build a fence around it. Okay? Well, we all know what's going to happen. The kudzu is just eventually going to take over the fence, and it's just going to spread out further. Okay? But at least what that fence now shows you is just how fast the kudzu is growing. Right? Because you're like, I know two years ago I built that fence, and now the kudzu is 20 feet beyond it. What Paul, my best explanation here is that the law, the fence, was added to show just how fast sin spreads. The law was added to show sin cannot be contained. And anytime we we say, well, I'm going to stop doing this by giving myself a bunch of rules, we're just going to show ourselves, if not under the power of the Holy Spirit, just, we're just going to show ourselves just how far sin will grow by the fence that we put around it. So Paul says, the law was added so that the trespass might increase. So to show how sin grows far beyond the barrier. But where sin increased, grace increased all the more. And Paul's saying, but grace is different than that. That, that as sin was growing, grace just grew with it. Grace just continued to cover it. And then he says, so that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So the question that Paul comes up with then is, well, if that's the way grace is, what keeps a person from just You know, if if grace is like these glad flex bags that's just going to contain it, contain it, contain it, you know, cover it, cover it, cover it, what keeps a person from just stuffing more sin into their life? He brings up a common question. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? Now, I believe the the question that Paul brings up is a rhetorical one. He's also voicing a nagging notion in most people's minds, though. There's a different aspect, aspects to the book of Romans that we kind of want to understand when we're studying it. When Paul's writing this letter, the Apostle Paul plans to visit the church in Rome. And this letter is laying the necessary groundwork for that anticipated visit. It's a defense of Paul's teachings. And this is important because there were some that were traveling around to the churches that Paul had visited or would be visiting, and they were trashing him and trashing his gospel. And one of the things that, that they were trashing about the gospel was to say, well, they're just giving people license to sin. And so this is the context of the question that Paul poses here as a rhetorical one. Paul is writing this, this explanation of his gospel, anticipating the questions, almost like, well, one might say, why not go on sinning so that if grace is just going to increase, or so that grace will increase, as he says. He's anticipating the question, aren't you teaching then, since grace is overabundant, that continuing in sin is actually a good thing because it just means more grace? But in honesty, we have to admit that Paul is bringing up a question that pops up 
in most of our minds. What does it matter? What does it matter what I do? If I'm forgiven, what does it matter? Having accepted Christ as my Savior, if there's more than enough of God's grace and forgiveness, what is there to keep me from sinning more because I know I'm forgiven already? The answer to this question is what we're looking at today. And to begin with, we want to better understand the answer by looking more closely at the question here. So he asks the question, shall we go on sinning? And the better, I like the way the NASB, we're working off the NIV here this morning, just because, as I said, this is a, a um, series that I had done um, before, uh, before coming here and switching to the ESV. But I like the way that the NAS translation puts this. Um, are we to continue in sin? And the verb relates more to the idea of are we to remain or do we can be remaining or abiding in a sinful pattern? He's not talking about are we just going to continue making, you know, mistakes, getting up on the wrong side of the bed, kicking the dog, you know. Um, he's talking about are we to make an excuse to stay in something that we know is sinful? It's not the idea of continuing to struggle with sin in general in its many different forms. In fact, when sin is spoken of in this passage, it's, it's not speaking of a specific sinful action. It's talking about our relationship with our sinful nature, our relationship with that part of us that we were born with um, just by being born as a descendant of Adam. The idea is solidified by Paul's objection to the question, how can we live in it, the sinful nature, any longer? I appreciate um, what the commentator, uh, Kenneth Wiest, says here. He says the question now can be further interpreted to mean, shall we continue habitually to sustain the same relationship with the sinful nature that we sustained before we were saved, a relationship which was most cordial, a relationship in which we were fully yielded to and dependent upon the sinful nature, and all of this out of a habit of life. Now, some of you who spent a period of your life prior to knowing Christ, you can relate a little bit more to this definition because you, you kind of understand a little bit more of your life prior to knowing Christ and your life after re- realizing that your sins were a problem between you and God and that, that Christ paid for those sins and he, he spanned that gap between you and your creator and by receiving him as your savior, you realize that you could have a relationship with God based on what Christ did in his death and his resurrection. So that's what I mean by when you received Christ. Many of you understand this is who I was prior to receiving Christ and this is how I changed. Some of us have kind of grown up in a Christian home. We we received Christ as as a young person and things. And, And that sinful nature that we're talking about is basically when we are living to serve ourselves. When we are living and everything that is around us is there for our own purposes. 
and, and we'll be, you know, I think that'll become clearer as we move forward. But according to Paul's rhetorical question on shall we go on sinning so that grace might increase, the purpose of continuing to live in the sinful nature is in order to increase grace, he's saying. And we say, what a whacked excuse for living in sin, right? But let's be honest for a second here. We might not be rationalizing continuing to sin because it it will give us more grace, but when it comes to any kind of sin, we can all end up like, like maybe the dating teenager with, with the raging hormones that asks the youth pastor, well, how far is too far? Right? But maybe your thought is, you know, if I share this as a prayer request, it's not really gossip, right? Or I'll get this movie and I'll, I'll just skip ahead of anything that I, I see that might be inappropriate. Um, or I've, in, the, in those terms, I've, I've heard before that, that some people regarding pornography have had a five-second rule. Well, as long as I look at it for less than five seconds. In answer to that, it actually requires the brain only 0.3 seconds for a pornographic image to completely register, give the brain the dopamine that it needs, and basically... S- concreted into the mind. Another question, why should I have to give the government so much money, especially if I disagree with what they're doing with it? I mean, that's not wrong, right? Or I know I should talk to my kid about the decisions he's making, but I don't think he's listening to me anyways. So I'm all right just hanging back, right? Or the one my wife loves to hear, I'm not overeating, I I just meant to eat these chips with my meal. I forgot about them. You know, we may not be using the excuse of trying to increase God's grace by by living just the way that we, we desire to live according to our sinful nature. But we come up with plenty of excuses on our own. I appreciate what Paul Tripp puts it. He says, we live with our faces pressed against the fence of God's commands till we have permanent waffle marks on our brow. And we're missing all the blessings of the life that God has set us free to enjoy that's within that fence. But this is who we tend to be. And if I hope if you pay attention I think you'll find immense hope and strength in this message of Romans 6. As, as parents, we, we typically are asked a myriad of things from our kids, and they receive, receive a whole range of emotional responses. I'm trying to work on saying, you know, I would love for you to be able to do that, but rather than just like, no, uh-uh, get away from it. <laughs> but... There's times where we're asked questions and our response is basically not on your life or over my dead body or God forbid that, you would, that I would let you do that. This is how Paul's argument in verse 2 
turns as he answers his own hypothetical question. He responds first with an emotional response of by no means should we just go on sinning because God's going to cover it. Or may it never be that we think that way. Or basically, may such a practice never be accepted. And hopefully our conversations with our kids come to a more principled explanation than just over my dead body. But in the same way, Paul provides us with a summary answer, a more rational response. He says, we who are dead to sin, is it even possible for us to live in it any longer? So we see a summary answer here. By no means, we died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? The sin we've established here is Paul's talking about we've died to our sinful nature. It's the nature that we were born with in our relationship with Adam. When he says we died, the word means we were separated from it by death. A separation that's not intended to be bridged again. Having accepted Christ as our Savior, we have the, we've been separated from our sinful nature. This is a consummative aorist, meaning that it is an event that's final and done with, as final as death itself. And Paul's explained in the chapters leading up to this point that the Christian is free from the penalty of his sin. And having established that, that we're free from sin's penalty, here he speaks of our freedom from sin's power. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? I remember seeing um, one time when I was uh, at a meal at at Camp Raybird, and I was taking my tray over to the the busing area, um, and... uh, just happened to look down on the, the, I'm kind of observant of odd things around me, not important things around me usually, but um, just happened to look down on the concrete and there was just like, it looked like there was like a piece of food being carried off by some ants or something, but it just kind of, was just kind of going in a circle. Just kind of like, what is this? And I started looking at it and some other, somebody else kind of came over and looked at it and stuff. And actually what we saw was really sad. What we saw was it was a moth, but its body was contorted over to one side. One side was was formed as it should be with legs and a wing, and the other side, the legs were stumpy. That side of it was shorter so that its its whole body was curved. It just had a little stumpy um, wing. And what had happened there was it, it failed to transform as it was supposed to. I knew it was sad. It was just kind of going in circles, and, and basically we just stepped on it. Because um, <laughs> it was just going to be that piece of food carried off by ants eventually. That was, well, either that or just let it be eaten alive. But we can feel like this moth that was not fully transformed as it should have been. 
We can read about the transformation of following Christ, but often we feel hindered by sin. And one of the lies that the enemy tells us is, well, it just didn't take for you. You know, your sin is just stronger than someone else's. Unfortunately, we often find ourselves willingly giving over the rule of our lives back to our sinful nature. It seems to be that we face this constant struggle in one way or another. It may be that we feel more secure controlling our world with sinful reactions, with harsh words or, or rejecting people or ignoring someone or being unloving. It may be that we've, we've brought we bought into the lie that sinful pleasures provide us more than the riches of God's grace. So while the rhetorical nature of Paul's argument here, while it's rhetorical in nature, I do believe that he takes a sort of turn in his explanation when he says, we died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? And then he, it's like he says, Or is the problem that you don't know what you should know? Is it a knowledge problem? And that's why he heads into verse 3, I believe, saying, or don't you know? Don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. And so he turns to the necessary knowledge that we must understand in order to keep our sinful nature from controlling us. We often are challenged to know the truth here in Romans 6. Our enemy desires to keep us in the dark. But God's truth is both what sets us free and also keeps us free as we should remain. The first of these truths that he shares with us that we must know is that the sin nature is dethroned. He tells us, we were therefore buried with him through baptism into death. And he describes here how, and he's not speaking about water baptism here, just as, as First Peter would say, not talking about the washing of, with the washing dirt from the body. He's talking about being baptized into Christ. Our spiritual baptism that physical baptism symbolizes. He says, we were, when we were baptized into Christ, when we came to know Christ as our Savior, we were baptized into his death. And as I mentioned, verses 5 and 6, and, and I'm just going to read those. Pardon me to, for having to find them here. This is how he explains further in, verses, in verse 6. For we know that our old self was crucified with him, so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. That's what he further goes on to explain in verses six and seven. He's adding to his argument here just how it is an explanation 
of how it is that we became dead to our sinful nature. And we were, he talks about how we were baptized into his death. Again, this is a consummative errorist, meaning once for all, we were immersed into the person of Christ. And by doing so, we were immersed into his death. And as verses seven, six and seven describe, meaning our sin nature could no longer have a hold on us. It's like we disappeared into Christ. And the technical definition of baptism is, in, is an interesting one. The introduction, it says, or placing of a person or thing into a new environment or into union with something else so as to alter its condition. You would describe a knife that has been tempered as having been baptized. And this is why. A knife goes through a forging process of, of, uh, of enfolding the metal and, and uh, combining one metal with another oftentimes. And, and, um, but the tempering process places the metal into um, a, a very hot, an extreme furnace. But then taking it out of that and then baptizing it into oil or into water. And by doing so, combining with that process in such a way that makes that metal go from untempered to tempered, to go from brittle to being stronger. And, and the better the knife, the better the sword, it might go through uh, more process like that back and forth. But we were placed like that, that blade that's tempered as it goes into the oil or to the water. Into a, we were placed into a new environment through accepting Christ's death as our payment for our sins. And the new life is one in which the sin nature is dethroned. We became something new. We became free. And we're also changed into a child of God with Christ as our king. And there's a purpose to our being freed from the power of the old nature. And that is to have the divine nature imparted. Paul says we were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that we too may live a new life. Just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. And this verse is more kind of showing the results of the, of the divine nature being imparted. We're given other verses as well, like 2 Corinthians 5.17, that says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. Or Galatians 2.20 describes our identification with Christ's death and resurrection in this way. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Now this is kind of an interesting contradiction it would seem like here. First he says, I no longer live... But then he says, the life I live in the body, 
I live by faith. What we see in Galatians 2.20 is that the sin nature that we are freed of when we are crucified with Christ, it is synonymous with me ruling my life. In other words, I am no longer king, but Christ is my king. So you could synonymously say, my sin nature no longer controls me. Or you could say, I no longer live for myself. I no longer serve myself. I'm no longer meant to serve myself. I'm meant to serve Christ. The purpose of our new condition is that it might have an effect on our daily life of serving Christ. And notice that it's just as Christ was raised from the dead, our new life was purchased at Christ's resurrection. I find great power in this statement, and I hope you can as well. We come to know Christ as our Savior, recognizing that in his death and his resurrection, he paid for our sins, and he made a way for us to have an eternal relationship with the Father. That same belief is intended to give us the freedom that we need to live a new life. If we believe that Jesus rose from the dead, this verse tells us that just as Jesus rose from the dead, we are to live a new life. It has been empowering for me to go to the Father and say, I know Jesus rose from the dead. I know a new life was purchased for me. Please help me get myself out of the way and find this new life, Father. In some ways, um, you're probably familiar with the the booklet, uh, My Heart, Christ's Home. It's a booklet that explains a person, their life as being like a house. And when they receive Christ as their Savior, they receive him into their home, into their life. And, and it, it, it depicts different rooms of their life as being different parts of their life. And it describes their growth in their relationship with God as, as introducing Christ to these different rooms. Or maybe Christ kind of saying, hey, let's check out what's in this closet. And, and the writer kind of goes through a process of like, oh, you don't want to go in there. It's dirty. You know, it's just got a bunch of my old stuff. But the, the booklet, My Heart, Christ's Home, describes how Christ lovingly allows the person to invite him into the different rooms. And, and that's kind of how we grow in our relationship with the Lord. And it's in those moments that we realize this area needs to belong to Christ, that we can claim that new life. We can claim that room of our life and say, wait a second, I know that Christ rose from the dead. And just as Christ rose from the dead, I am able to live a new life. These are the truths that Paul is giving us to say, is, it, is the problem that you don't know these things? That you were baptized into Christ? 
and that just as he rose from the dead, you may live a new life. These are the truths we need. And it's, it, and it's not a do-over of the same life, the term here. It's a superior state. It's a new kind of life, a superior newness to this life, new and improved and empowered life. You know, when I, when I adopted my boys from, from Liberia, it's my desire for them to have a new life. It's my desire for them to have all the opportunities that they could, but I can't empower them to take advantage of all the opportunities that are there. I can't give them the gumption, if you will, to live that life that I hope for them. This term here of new life is that. It is a newness, an empowered life that we are intended to have to change when Christ brings that to our attention and says, let's work on this. We're intended to have the power to do it. And we think of the work of Christ in his death and his resurrection as being for saving us from the penalty of our sins. A large part of the purpose of his saving his work is that our daily life might be full of joy and of purpose and of the freedom from the dominance of sin. Still, if you imagine your life being like a castle, okay? And, and what Paul is alerting us to is the fact that he's saying, hey, when Christ came into your life, your sin nature was dethroned. He was pulled off the throne and Christ was set there. But the fact is this, that our life being like a castle, the old sin nature still lurks the hallways. He's a dethroned king that's just looking for the opportunity to convince us that he belongs on the throne. And he's looking for the opportunity to convince us that there's nothing we can do about it. And that sense of, this is who I am. I have to act this way. Or this is, who, this, is, this is what my upbringing was. How can I behave any differently? That's what's going on there. Is that dethroned king is saying, I belong on that throne. And this is what Paul is alerting us to. It may, seem like, it may look a lot like we're sitting on the throne of our lives when we're controlling our world, but it's really our sin nature ruling us. We don't live like this by this truth when we don't live by the truth that we have been set free from this sin nature to be, and and a new nature has been imparted to us. It, It often comes through dangerous drift or rebellion. And we lose a sense of purpose in our life and the Holy Spirit is grieved and hopefully we feel it. And our relationship with God and with other believers is strained. But the beauty of this passage is the assurance that we are not meant to live this way. There's been many times in my life when God has graciously shaken me awake 
and I've been allowing my sinful nature to have control over an area of my life. And in those times, I've found, as I mentioned, it powerfully ministry to me to claim that, wait a second, I've been given new life. I'm intended to live new in this area. And that's when it's excellent to find someone for accountability. That's when it's excellent if you just can't see the forest for the trees to sit down for counsel with someone to say, will you help me thumb through this? Because I know, according to these verses, I'm not meant to live this way. I'm not meant to live under the control of my sinful nature. So we've described what it should that it should hap- not happen that a Christian is ruled by their dethroned sinful nature. We've looked closely at the facts of just how a divine nature was imparted to us. And we're going to look more closely next week at this idea of what our responsibility is. And our responsibility is to count on it. It's to count on it. Paul tells us in verse 11, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. This idea of count yourselves, it's, it's, it's a banking term. It means credit it to your account. Or, well, it means to, to acknowledge that it has been credited to your account. Um, let's say I deposit $1,000, okay, into your banking account. And let's say you say, thank you, that's very gracious of you. And let's say you say, I really appreciate knowing that it's there. Uh-huh, you know, that's so, that's so great. But basically, it, it's not helpful to you until you write a check on it. It's not helpful to you until you act upon it and say, I'm going to pay for this knowing that that money is there. And that's what Paul is saying. Act on it. Count on it. Write a check on this truth that you have been set free to live a new life. And this is what we're going to be talking about next week. Our sin nature is dethroned and our divine nature, a divine nature is imparted to us. And the question we'll deal with is what does it look like to count on it? We have had so much more done for us than $6 million worth of work. It's made us stronger, freer, more purposeful than ever before. I hope that we can learn from these verses and realize that God has done all that needs to be done on his side. As just as Christ was raised from the dead, we have been provided a new life to live. So again, I look forward to next week as we look at just how do we live that out? What does it look like to count on it? Let's close in prayer. Father, these are powerful, freeing ideas and and I would hope that you are speaking to each one of us in about the area of our life that we just keep running into for those of us who have trusted Christ as our savior and your holy spirit is there and we realize and we ask ourselves why do I keep doing this why do I keep acting this way 
Lord, I pray that you would uh, bring those things to our attention during this week. I pray, Lord God, that you'd allow us to live out of the new nature that you've given to us. Lord, if anyone here has not accepted Christ as their Savior, they don't have your Holy Spirit indwelling them, they don't know what it means to have that sin nature dethroned. Lord, that's a terrible place to be and to live. And what's even worse is if the enemy is giving us a happy life amidst it. Lord, I pray that you'd make it painfully clear to anyone in this state that's here today that they need to know Christ as their Savior, that they need to admit that they are sinners separated from you, and that it's only by Christ's death and resurrection that we have any hope of knowing you as our Lord, knowing our Creator God, and that by receiving him, that receiving your grace and your forgiveness, that we can have you as our Father. Lord, I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.